Section 9 of The Seven Follies of Science. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bev Stevens. The Seven Follies of Science by John Finn. Section 9. Folly 5. Transmutation of the Metals. The accursed thirst for gold has existed from the earliest ages, and, as the Apostle says, is the root of all evil. Those who have a greed for power, a craving for luxury, or a fever for lust, all think that their wildest dreams might be realized if they could only command sufficient gold. Never was there a more lurid picture of a mind inflamed with all these evil passions than that set forth by Ben Jonson in the second act of The Alchemist. And who can doubt but that such desires and dreams spurred on many either to engage in an actual search for the philosopher's stone or to become the dupes of what Van Helmont calls a diabolical crew of gold and silver-sucking flies and leeches? As we might naturally expect, the early history of alchemy is shrouded in myths and fables. Zosimus the Panapolite tells us that the art of alchemy was first taught to mankind by demons, who fell in love with the daughters of men, and as a reward for their favours, taught them all the works and mysteries of nature. On this Boerhaave remarks, this ancient fiction took its rise from a mistaken interpretation of the words of Moses, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. From whence it was inferred that the sons of God were demons, consisting of a soul and a visible but impalpable body, like the image in a looking-glass to which notion we find several allusions in the evangelists, that they know all things, appeared to men and conversed with them, fell in love with women, had intrigues with them, and revealed secrets. From the same fable probably arose that of the Sibyl, who is said to have obtained of Apollo the gift of prophecy, and revealing the will of heaven in return for a like favour. So prone is the roving mind of man to figments, which it can at first idly amuse itself with, and at length fall down and worship. This idea of the supernatural origin of the arts permeates the ancient mythology, which everywhere teaches that men were taught the sacred arts of medicine and chemistry by gods and demigods. Modern science discards all these mythological accounts, Whatever knowledge the ancients acquired of medicine and chemistry was, no doubt, reached along two lines, pharmacy and metallurgy. That the pharmacist or apothecary exercised his calling at a very early period, we have positive knowledge. Thus, in the book of Ecclesiastes, we are told that dead flies cause the ointment of the apothecary to send forth a stinking savour and that men at a very early day found out the means of working iron, copper, gold, silver, etc., is evident from the accounts given of Vulcan and Tubalcane, as well as from the remains of old tools and weapons. 
and that alchemy, as it is generally understood, is a comparatively modern outgrowth of these two arts, is pretty certain. No mention of the art of converting the baser metals into gold, and no account of a universal medicine or elixir of life, is to be found in any of the authentic writings of the ancients. Homer, Aristotle, and even Pliny are all silent on the subject and those writings which treat of the art, and which claim an ancient origin, such as the books of Hermes Trismegistus, are now regarded by the best authorities as spurious, the evidence that they were the work of a far later age being irrefragable. Several writers have taken the ground that the alchemical treatises, which have come down to us from the early writers on the subject, are purely allegorical, and do not relate to material things, but to the principles of a higher religion which, in those days, it was dangerous to expound in plain language. One or two elaborate works and several articles supporting this view have been published, but the common-sense reader who will glance through the immense collection of alchemical tracts gathered together by Mangatus in two folio volumes of a thousand pages each, will rise from such examination, very thoroughly convinced that it was the actual metal gold and the fabled universal medicine that these writers had in view. There can be little doubt that Geber, Roger Bacon, Albertus Magnus, Raymond Lully, Helvetius, Van Helmont, Basil Valentine, and others describe very substantial things with a minuteness of detail which leaves no room for doubt as to their materiality, though we cannot always be sure of their identity. Some confusion of thought has been caused by the difference which has been made between the terms alchemy and chemistry and their applications. The word alchemy is simply the word chemistry with the Arabic word al, which signifies the, prefixed, and the history of alchemy is really the history of chemistry. Wild and erratic in its beginnings, and giving rise to strange hopes and still stranger theories, but ever working along the line of discovery and progress. And although many of the professional chemists or alchemists of the Middle Ages were undoubted charlatans and quacks, yet did we not have many of the same kind in the nineteenth century? We may use the word alchemist as a term of reproach, and apply it to these early workers, because their theories appear to us to be absurd. But how do we know that the chemists of the twenty-second century will not regard us in a similar light, and set at naught the theories we so fondly cherish? Only seven out of the large number of metals now catalogued by us were known to the ancients. These were gold, silver, mercury, copper, tin, lead, and iron. And as it happened that the list of so-called planets also numbered exactly seven, it was thought that there must be a connection between the two, and consequently, in the alchemical writings, each metal was called by the name of that one of the heavenly bodies which was supposed to be connected with it in influence and quality. In the astronomy of the ancients, as is generally known, the earth occupied the center of the universe, and the list of planets included the sun and moon. 
After them came Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. To the metal gold was given the name of Sol, or the Sun, on account of its brightness and its power of resisting corroding agents. Hence the compounds of gold were known as solar compounds and solar medicines. As might have been expected, silver was assigned to Luna, or the Moon. And in the modern pharmacopoeia, such terms as lunar caustic and lunar salts still have a place. Mercury was, of course, appropriated to the planet of that name. Copper was named after Venus, and cupreous salts were known as venereal salts. Iron, probably from its being the metal chiefly used for making arms and armor, was dedicated to Mars, and we still speak of martial salts. Tin was named after Jupiter from his brilliancy, the compounds of tin being called jovial salts. The dull, leaden color of Saturn, with his apparently heavy and slow motion, seemed to fit him for association with lead, and we still have the Saturnine ointment as a reminder of old alchemical times. Of these metals gold was supposed to be the only one that was perfect, and the belief was general that if the others could be purified and perfected, they would be changed to gold. Many of the old chemists worked faithfully and honestly to accomplish this, but the path to wealth seemed so direct, and the means for deception were so ready and simple, that large numbers of quacks and charlatans entered the field, and held out the most alluring inducements to dupes, who furnished them liberally with money and other necessaries, in the hope that when the discovery was made, they would be put in possession of unbounded wealth. These dupes were easily deceived and led astray by simple frauds, which scarcely rose to the level of amateur Lejardemain. In the memoirs of the Academy of Sciences for 1772, Monsieur Geoffroy gives an account of the various modes in which the frauds of these swindlers were carried on. The following are a few of their tricks. Instead of the mineral substances which they pretended to transmute, they put a salt of gold or silver at the bottom of the crucible, the mixture being covered with some powdered crucible and gum water or wax, so that it might look like the bottom of the crucible. Another method was to bore a hole in a piece of charcoal, fill the hole with fine filings of gold or silver, stopping it with powdered charcoal, mixed with some agglutinant so that the hole might look natural. Then, when the charcoal burned away, the silver or gold was found in the bottom of the crucible. Or they soaked charcoal in a solution of these metals, and threw the charcoal, when powdered, upon the material to be transmuted. Sometimes they whitened gold with mercury, and made it pass for silver or tin, and the gold, when melted, was exhibited as the result of transmutation. A common exhibition was to dip nails in a liquid, and to take them out apparently half converted into gold. These nails consisted of one half iron, neatly soldered to the other half, which was gold, and covered with something to conceal the color. The paint or covering was removed by the liquid. A very common trick was the use of a hollow iron stirring rod, 
the hollow was filled with gold or silver filings, and neatly stopped with wax. When used to stir the contents of the crucible, the wax melted, and allowed the gold or silver to fall out. These frauds were rendered all the more easy because of certain statements which were current in regard to successful attempts to convert lead and other metals into gold. These accounts were vouched for by well-known chemists and others of high standing. Perhaps the most famous of these is that given by Helvetius in his Brief of the Golden Calf, discovering the rarest miracle in nature how by the smallest portion of the philosopher's stone a great piece of common lead was totally transmuted into the purest transplendent gold at the hague in sixteen sixty six the following is brand's abridgment of this singular account the twenty-seventh day of december sixteen sixty six in the afternoon came a stranger to my house at the hague in a plebeic habit of honest gravity and serious authority, of a mean stature and a little long face, black hair not at all curled, a beardless chin, and about forty-four years, as I guess, of age, and born in North Holland. After salutation he beseeched me with great reverence to pardon his rude excesses, for he was a lover of the pyrotechnian art and having read my treatise against the sympathetic powder of Sir Canelm Digby, and observed my doubt about the philosophic mystery, induced him to ask me if I really was a disbeliever as to the existence of a universal medicine which would cure all diseases, unless the principal parts were perished, or the predestinated time of death come, I replied, I never met with an adept or saw such a medicine though I had fervently prayed for it. Then I said, Surely you are a learned physician. No, said he, I am a brass founder and a lover of chemistry. He then took from his bosom pouch a neat ivory box, and out of it three ponderous lumps of stone, each about the bigness of a walnut. I greedily saw and handled for a quarter of an hour this most noble substance, the value of which might be somewhere about twenty tons of gold. And having drawn from the owner many rare secrets of its admirable effects, I returned him this treasure of treasures with a most sorrowful mind, humbly beseeching him to bestow a fragment of it upon me in perpetual memory of him, though but the size of a coriander seed. No, no, said he, that is not lawful, though thou wouldst give me as many golden ducats as would fill this room, for it would have particular consequences, and if fire could be burned of fire, I would at this instant rather cast it all into the fiercest flames. He then asked if I had a private chamber whose prospect was from the public street, so I presently conducted him to my best furnished room backwards, which he entered, says Helvetius in the true spirit of Dutch cleanliness, without wiping his shoes, which were full of snow and dirt. I now expected he would bestow some great secret upon me, but in vain. He asked for a piece of gold, and opening his doublet showed me five pieces of that precious metal which he wore upon a green riband, 
and which very much excelled mine in flexibility and colour, each being the size of a small trencher. I now earnestly again craved a crumb of the stone, and at last, out of his philosophical commiseration, he gave me a morsel as large as a rapeseed. But I said, This scanty portion will scarcely transmute four grains of lead. Then, said he, deliver it me back, which I did in hopes of a greater parcel. But he, cutting off half with his nail, said, Even this is sufficient for thee. Sir, said I, with a dejected countenance, what means this? And he said, Even that will transmute half an ounce of lead. So I gave him great thanks, and said I would try it, and reveal it to no one. He then took his leave, and said he would call again next morning at nine. I then confessed that while the mass of his medicine was in my hand the day before, I had secretly scraped off a bit with my nail, which I projected on lead, but it caused no transmutation, for the whole flew away in fumes. Friend, said he, thou art more dexterous in committing theft than in applying medicine. Hadst thou wrapped up thy stolen prey in yellow wax, it would have penetrated and transmuted the lead into gold. I then asked if the philosophic work cost much or required long time, for philosophers say that nine or ten months are required for it. He answered, Their writings are only to be understood by the adepts, without whom no student can prepare this magistry. Fling not away therefore thy money and goods in hunting out this art, for thou shalt never find it. To which I replied, as thy master showed it thee, so mayest thou perchance discover something thereof to me, who know the rudiments, and therefore it may be easier to add to a foundation than begin anew. In this art, said he, it is quite otherwise, for unless thou knowest the thing from head to heel, thou canst not break open the glassy seal of Hermes. But enough! To-morrow, at the ninth hour, I will show thee the manner of projection. But Elias never came again. So my wife, who was curious in the art whereof the worthy man had discoursed, teased me to make the experiment with the little spark of bounty the artist had left me. So I melted half an ounce of lead, upon which my wife put in the said medicine. It hissed and bubbled, and in a quarter of an hour the mass of lead was transmuted into fine gold, at which we were exceedingly amazed. I took it to the goldsmith, who judged it most excellent, and willingly offered fifty florins for each ounce. Such is the celebrated history of Elias the artist and Dr. Helvetius. Helvetius stood very high as a man and chemist, but in connection with this, and some other narratives of the same kind, it may be well to remember that something over a hundred years before that time, the celebrated Paracelsus had introduced laudanum. The following is another history of transmutation, given by Mangatus, on the authority of Monsieur Gross, a clergyman of Geneva, of the most unexceptionable character, 
and at the same time a skilful physician and expert chemist. About the year 1650 an unknown Italian came to Geneva and took lodgings at the sign of the Green Cross. After remaining there a day or two, he requested de Luc, the landlord, to procure him a man acquainted with Italian, to accompany him through the town and point out those things which deserved to be examined. De Luc was acquainted with Monsieur Gross, at that time about twenty years of age, and a student in Geneva, and knowing his proficiency in the Italian language, requested him to accompany the stranger. To this proposition he willingly acceded, and attended the Italian everywhere for the space of a fortnight. The stranger now began to complain of want of money, which alarmed Monsieur Gross not a little, for at that time he was very poor, and he became apprehensive, from the tenor of the stranger's conversation, that he intended to ask the loan of money from him. But instead of this the Italian asked him if he was acquainted with any goldsmith, whose bellows and other utensils they might be permitted to use, and who would not refuse to supply them with the different articles requisite for a particular process which he wanted to perform. Monsieur Gross named a Monsieur Bureau, to whom the Italian immediately repaired. He readily furnished crucibles, pure tin, quicksilver, and the other things required by the Italian. The goldsmith left his workshop, that the Italian might be under the less restraint, leaving Monsieur Gross with one of his own workmen as an attendant. The Italian put a quantity of tin into one crucible, and a quantity of quicksilver into another. The tin was melted in the fire, and the mercury heated. It was then poured into the melted tin, and at the same time a red powder enclosed in wax was projected into the amalgam. An agitation took place, and a great deal of smoke was exhaled from the crucible. But this speedily subsided, and the whole being poured out, formed six heavy ingots, having the color of gold. The goldsmith was called in by the Italian, and requested to make a rigid examination of the smallest of these ingots. The goldsmith, not content with the touchstone and the application of aquafortis, exposed the metal on the cupel with lead, and fused it with antimony, but it sustained no loss. He found it possessed of the ductility and specific gravity of gold, and full of admiration he exclaimed that he had never worked before upon gold so perfectly pure. The Italian made him a present of the smallest ingot, as a recompense, and then, accompanied by Monsieur Gross, he repaired to the mint, where he received from Monsieur Bacuet, the mint-master, a quantity of Spanish gold coin, equal in weight to the ingots which he had brought. To Monsieur Gross he made a present of twenty pieces, on account of the attention that he had paid to him and after paying his bill at the inn, he added fifteen pieces more, to serve to entertain Monsieur Gross and Monsieur Bureau for some days, and in the meantime he ordered a supper, that he might, on his return, have the pleasure of supping with these two gentlemen. He went out, but never returned, leaving behind him the greatest regret and admiration. 
it is needless to add that m gros and m bureau continued to enjoy themselves at the inn till the fifteen pieces which the stranger had left were exhausted narratives such as these led even bergman a very able chemist of the period to take the ground that although most of these relations are deceptive and many uncertain some bear such character and testimony that unless we reject all historical evidence we must allow them entitled to confidence a much more probable explanation is that the relators were either dreaming or deceived by clever legardemain of the possibility or impossibility of converting the more common metals into gold or silver it would be rash to give a positive opinion to say that gold silver lead copper etc are elements and cannot be changed is merely to say that we have not been able to decompose them water potash soda and other substances were at one time considered elements and resisted all the efforts of the older chemists to resolve them into their components but with the advent of more powerful means of analysis they were shown to be compounds and it is not impossible that the so-called elements into which they were resolved may themselves be found to be compounds this has happened in regard to some substances which were at one time announced as elements and it is not impossible that it may happen in regard to others the ablest chemists of the present day recognize this fully and are prepared for radical changes in our knowledge of the nature and constitution of matter amongst the new views is the hypothesis of rutherford and soddy which as given by sir william ramsay in a recent article contributed by him to harper's magazine is that atoms of elements of high atomic weight such as radium uranium thorium and the suspected elements polonium and actinium are unstable that they undergo spontaneous change into other forms of matter themselves radioactive and themselves unstable and that finally elements are produced which on account of their non-radioactivity are as a rule impossible to recognize for their minute amount precludes the application of any ordinary test with success the recognition of helium however which is comparatively easy of detection lends great support to this hypothesis at the same time we must not lose sight of the fact that the substances which we now recognize as elements have not only resisted the most powerful analytical agencies and dissociating forces but have maintained their elemental character in spectrum analysis and shown their presence as distinct elements in the sun and other heavenly bodies where they must have been subjected to the action of the most energetic decomposing forces so that in the present state of our knowledge the near prospect of successful transmutation does not seem to be very bright although we cannot regard it as impossible in the article from which we have already quoted sir william ramsay after discussing the bearing of certain experiments in regard to the parting with and absorbing of energy by certain elements says if these hypotheses are just 
then the transmutation of the elements no longer appears an idle dream. The philosopher's stone will have been discovered, and it is not beyond the bounds of possibility that it may lead to that other goal of the philosophers of the Dark Ages, the elixir vitae. For the action of living cells is also dependent on the nature and direction of the energy which they contain, and who can say that it will be impossible to control their action, when the means of imparting and controlling energy shall have been investigated? In the event of the discovery of a cheap method of producing gold, the change which would certainly occur in our financial or currency system would be important, if not revolutionary. It has become the fashion at present, with certain writers, to scout the so-called quantitative theory of money as if it were an exposed fallacy. Now the quantitative theory of money rests on one of the most well-grounded and firmly established principles in political economy. The trouble is that the writers in question do not understand it, or even know what it is. At present the production of gold barely keeps pace with the increasing demand for the metal as currency and in the arts, but if that production were increased tenfold, the value of gold would decline and prices would go up astonishingly. One of the objects which the better class of alchemists had in view was the making of gold to such an extent that it might become quite common and cease to be sought after by mankind. One alchemical writer says, Would to God that all men might become adepts in our art, for then gold, the common idol of mankind, would lose its value, and we should prize it only for its scientific teaching. End of section 9